We're going to Galatians chapter 5, looking in the second half of the chapter this week, verses 16 through 25. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians this new year, and just talking about the gospel and what it means, what it is, how it applies to our lives. And today, and as we start to move into kind of the, the last part of the book here, uh, Paul's going to go even more so into how do we apply the gospel to our everyday lives? How do we walk this out? It's where he's going to be talking this morning, and I think this would be helpful for us. So uh, Galatians 5, 16 through 25 is where we're going to be at. Um, so do you ever feel like life is a battle? Right? You just kind of feel that day to day in the moment. Uh, it could be things outside of us like finances or circumstances or relationships or just tension at work or whatever it is you're working, walking through. Sometimes it's a battle because of things inside of us like our own emotions that we're dealing with, or our own thoughts, or desires, or health struggles, or, but there's always seems like there's something, there's something that we're battling against on a regular basis, and this world oftentimes is kind of like a, like a live minefield that we're walking through, that we're trying to find our path through this minefield, but the problem is um, one wrong step, and it could all be over, right? Everything could just blow up, and to boot, we don't know where the mines are at. And so we're constantly just trying to walk our way through this life, stepping on these landmines, and sin and mess and brokenness is just blowing up our lives. But when we come to Christ, when we finally put our faith in Jesus and we receive the Holy Spirit, we get a guide who knows where every single mine is at. And his job is to guide us through this world and all of the mess and the craziness and to get us safely to the other side to Jesus Christ. And today Paul is going to press us, he's going to encourage us like, hey, you have the guide, just, just, just follow. Just follow the guide. Just follow the Holy Spirit and he'll get you through all of it, through the battle, through this mess, through all the, he's our secret weapon, if you will to survive the battle of this life until we get to eternity. And so Paul here, he's going to point us back to him. And he's going to tell us, walk by the Spirit to war against the flesh. If we're going to win this battle, if we're going to win this war, we have to walk by the Spirit, he says. So pick up in verse, with me in verse 16 this morning. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Point number one this morning, fight the flesh with the Spirit. Paul's telling us here we've got to fight the flesh with the Spirit. His opening exhortation is simple, right? Walk by the Spirit. Now, the word walk there um, is a Greek word that meant to, to follow someone around, to literally just walk right behind them everywhere they went and just, just kind of follow whatever they do. And it was oftentimes actually became a, kind of like a title that was used for Aristotle's students because that was their whole MO, right? They would just follow him around everywhere he went and just observe what he was doing and just learn and listen and just whatever Aristotle did, that's what they did. That's the word walk here. That's what he's telling us. He says, walk by the Spirit. Our job as believers is to simply just follow the Spirit 
And whatever he does, whatever he says, wherever he goes, that's what we do. That's what we say. That's where we go. We just learn from our teacher that we've been given in Christ. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we're going to use that word flesh a lot today, so let's just kind of define that real quick. It's not talking about our skin, okay? It's not talking about like your physical flesh. It's talking about our spiritual flesh. The New Testament uses that word to talk about our fallen, sinful nature, this part of us that's broken, that wants to rebel against God and do our own thing and and go against him. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, which sounds kind of like a command, right? He's like, do this, don't do that. But it's actually more of a promise. He's saying, hey, if, if you will walk by the Spirit, guess what? You won't even want to gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? It's two different things. It's, it's, if you're submitting to the Holy Spirit, you can't be gratifying the desires of the flesh. You can't do those things simultaneously. You can't worship and worry at the same time. Right? You can't pray and look at pornography at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You can't give generously to others and be greedy for your own self at the same time. You can't be submitted to the Spirit and walking in the flesh. They don't go together. He says, so if you submit to the Spirit, it blocks you from gratifying the desires of the flesh. There's a pastor named Mark Brogop who once said it this way. He said, the power of no is in a stronger yes. The power of no is in a stronger yes, meaning the best way to say no to the flesh is to first say yes to the Spirit. Because as I'm submitting myself to Him, He will lead me away from the flesh and towards Christ. He goes on, he says, because the flesh and the Spirit are against one another. They're opposed to one another, he says. So Paul here, he's describing for us this internal battle that is raging inside of every single Christian. Hear that today. Friends, hear me. He's describing the internal battle that every single one of us deals with. And we feel this. We, even if we don't want to admit it, sometimes we feel this innately. There's a battle in us between the old self and the new self. Between the desires of the flesh and the power of the Spirit working in us. There's this constant battle and tension. And so many Christians, oftentimes they struggle to understand this. They struggle to live in the tension of that. And so they make one of two battle mistakes. Either first, they overplay the flesh. They see every, every time they fall, every time they sin, they see that as the end of everything, right? And all the shame comes back, and all the doubt about my salvation comes back, and all the fear that I'm not going to make it, and the guilt, and I'm just overridden by that because I've sinned again. And they overplay the power of the flesh in this battle instead of turning to the Holy Spirit. Or the second mistake is they underplay the flesh. Where they're like, oh, I'm forgiven, I'm with Jesus, it's all good, I don't need to worry about that. And they just keep living in the flesh and not trying to battle at all. And they just give in to that side of the tension. Both of those things, both of those reactions lead us back to 
slavery to the flesh that Paul talked about in the last couple chapters. One is slavery to fear and doubt and guilt and shame because of our flesh. The other is slavery to living in our sin in our flesh and not in the Spirit. Instead, we must realize that there is a war, and this war will continue throughout the rest of this life. You're never going to get out of this until you arrive in glory and Jesus gives you that perfect body and that perfect presence with him. Like This is going to be there. This tension, this battle is going to be part of our lives. And so our job is to walk more in the Spirit so we can experience victory over the flesh. But we have to fight, Paul says. He goes on, he says, to keep you, he says, you have this tension, this battle going on to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So here's what he means by that. When the Holy Spirit comes, he gives every one of us a new heart. Right? Like that's the whole part. You put your faith in Jesus, Holy Spirit comes, he changes your heart, he changes your desires, he makes you into a new person, a new identity in Jesus Christ. That's who we are now. That's who we really are. Our, and once you put your faith in Christ, your true desires are now for the things of Christ. And yet, our flesh still continues to try to fight back and get control of our heart. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 some more. He says in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Does that resonate with anybody this morning? It's like, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on inside of me. He says, for I, verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That last line is so important. He says, when I sin, that's no longer who I am. That's not who I am. That's the sin that still dwells in me. It's still the flesh fighting against me, but that's not who I am anymore. Because now I have the Holy Spirit giving me a new nature and a new, and this is a, this is a statement of hope and affirmation that I am in the Spirit, and that's who I truly am. This other stuff, that's foreign. It's still there, but it's not me anymore. The problem is, when we fall into sin in those times, Satan loves to switch it on us, doesn't he? He's like, no, 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 see that? That is the real you. Right? You did it again. Right? You've always been like this. You're always going to be like this. This is who you really are. You're not fooling anybody. And he loves to just pile up that shame on us. But the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 that's, that's not who you are anymore. You're a new creation. You're new in Christ. Right? There's hope in this. Paul says, I don't do the things that I want to do because this flesh is fighting against me. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're walking in grace, if you're walking in forgiveness, there is no more shame from the law. There is no more condemnation. You have been rescued from that. You've been forgiven of all that. You are free because you are in Christ, and so you will live to fight another day in this battle of the flesh and the Spirit as you walk with Jesus. Fight the flesh with the Spirit. My dad was a pastor for many years, and he used to describe this passage like this. He said, 
within, within every single one of us, there's two dogs that are fighting. The dog of the flesh and the dog of the spirit, and they're in this giant dog fight in our hearts. They're all, both of them are trying to be the top dog of our lives. He says, the one that's going to win is the one that you feed the most. The one that's going to win is the one that you feed the most. We can't ever completely rid ourselves of the flesh. It's going to be there. But we can decide whether we want to strengthen it or weaken it by what we feed into our hearts and into our minds. We're building up one side or the other to win that battle. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I feeding myself the things of the flesh or am I feeding myself the things of the Spirit? If I want to walk by the Spirit, I have to feed the Spirit more than I feed my flesh. That's how we're going to win the battle. Because the Spirit is your only hope to defeat the flesh. You can't do it on your own. Nobody else can do it for you. Church can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. We need the Spirit. Fight the flesh with the Spirit. That's point number one. He goes on, look at verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Point number two is this. Look for works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. Look. Observe. That's how he starts off here. He says, now the works of the flesh. Now notice real quick, he's changed the word here. But previously he was talking about the desires of the flesh. Now he's talking about the works of the flesh. Two different things that are connected. The works of the flesh are the outward behaviors that we do that show that there's something going on down in our heart. There's some desire in our heart that is desiring the things of the flesh and therefore it produces the works of the flesh. It's an outward thing that's pointing to a deeper inward thing that we need to deal with. Okay, He says these works of the flesh are evident. Some of your translations might say that they're obvious. In other words, they're easy to see. They're easy to spot. Right? They're out there. They're, they're observable things that everybody can see and notice very easily. The problem is today our culture tries to take this list of the things of the flesh and relabel them as something else. To relabel them as something good or something personal or something that that's just who you are and you can't control that and so just give in. But no matter how they're labeled, they're still obvious, they're still evident, they're still easy to spot if we know what to look for. And so we need God's word to tell us, hey, this is what you need to be on the watch for. This is what you need to be looking for. And so Paul's asking us here to do a self-evaluation. A self-evaluation, not a, not a spouse evaluation, okay? 
Uh, not, a, not a kid or, or family evaluation, not a, a neighbor evaluation, a self-evaluation. Are any of these works of the flesh evident in my life? Are any of these still showing their ugly head in my life? And he's going to go into this list, and there's four categories within this list. I'm going to walk through them real briefly here. Number one, the first category is sexuality. He starts with three terms here that are all related to sexuality. He starts with sexual immorality, which is defined as any sexual act outside of marriage. That could be fornication, that could be adultery, any sexual act outside of the marriage relationship. That's what he means by sexual immorality. That's the first one. Second one is impurity. Impurity is pointing now to unnatural sex acts, things that are outside of the way God designed creation to work. So these would be things like homo, uh, homosexuality, incest, pedophilia, so on and so forth. Okay, Things that are outside of God's created design for sex. The third category is sensuality. Sensuality actually means a lack of restraint. That, that I can't, I'm just obsessed with it and I can't go without it. This leads to things like pornography use, sexual abuse of others, rape even, or just simply flaunting our bodies for other people because we're just obsessed with sexuality. Those are the first three that he names in that category. Second category he hits is religion. He starts with idolatry. Worshiping false gods. Now, back then that meant going to the temple and worshiping these other gods and things like that primarily. We don't really have much of that today, but we do still have other things that we worship as if they are God. Things that we give top billing in our life that we think are the most important things. Things like money and sex and safety and family and fame and power and the list could go on. Anything that we think is the most important thing, and we, we put all of our energy in our life into pursuing that. That's idolatry. It's worshiping something else as God. The second one he does for religion is sorcery. Now again, this is a weird term. We don't really talk about that a lot in modern day vernacular for us. And, but what sorcery really simply is, if you boil it down, it's seeking God's power through other evil forces. It's seeking the power of God through some other channel besides God. All right? So it's usually used to try to, to know things that we don't get to know or to control things that we don't get to control or to somehow see into the future things that we're not supposed to see. Right? Things that are beyond us that are only God's to know, see, and control, but we want to have them. And so we seek them through these other channels. Examples today would be things like living by our horoscopes or calling psychics to get the latest what's going to happen in my life or playing with Ouija boards to try to know or control things in life. And some of us chuckle at those like those are all for, those are silly, those are not a big deal. But they are a big deal. They're not just silly, actually. Um, and actually, I, I think this idea of sorcery even creeps into our hearts and our minds in even smaller ways through ways that our culture tells us to embrace these things through fiction, like movies or TV shows 
or books that celebrate these ideas of supernatural forces outside of God. And the problem with those fictional stories and so forth is that they're feeding us lies about what is true and what is not true. They're trying to tell us that these supernatural forces, that they're all make-believe and that they're not real, but they are real. Maybe not in the way that they're depicted in that particular instance, but they are real. There are evil supernatural forces in the world that are working against the things of God. And the other lie that they try to feed us is that, that these other forces, that they can be good. Right? That there's good ones and there's bad ones. You just have to make sure you're with the good ones. Friends, there aren't any good ones outside of God. Outside of God, there is nothing else in this world supernatural that is good. He is the only one. And the third lie is that they're equal in power. That there's the good side and there's the bad side and they're in this big battle and we just have to wait and see who's going to win. There is a good side and there is a bad side, but only one side's going to win. Because all other supernatural forces are submitted to the almighty God. There's no contest here. And so we have to be careful that we don't allow these things to creep in, even in small ways, through media and through culture around us. The next category is relationships. He has a long list for this one. These will be more familiar to many of us, unfortunately. Um, The first one is enmity. Hatred and strife towards others who are made in God's image, people that he loves that we hate because they disagree with us or because we got into an argument or because we have some type of issue with them. The second one is strife. means to be argumentative, picking fights with people, arguing just to argue as if that's something that's just good for us to do. But oftentimes it's rooted in pride that we want to show something or prove something or be something. The third one is jealousy, which means bitterness over someone else's blessings. They got something good, and I don't want them to have it. That's what jealousy is. And it shows a lack of love towards others and when God gives them good things. The next one is fits of anger. means uncontrolled temper, eruptions, lashing out when I don't get my way or when I'm not in control. Rivalries is pointing to selfish ambition. It's this, this need to, to be in control. You're control-hungry and power-seeking and always wanting to be on top. Dissensions and divisions go together. That's just dividing over disagreements when we disagree about things. Picking sides and building our platforms and warring against one another instead of being united in Christ and what's most important. The last one is envy, related to jealousy, but a little bit different. This isn't just not wanting them to have it, but I want to have what they have. I want to take it from them. And it shows a lack of gratitude towards God and what he's given to me. Those are all relational ones. And then the last category has to do with substance abuse. And there's two here. He talks about drunkenness to start with. And a lot of times in our culture, we think about drunkenness primarily in terms of alcohol. But it means more than that here. It means any substance abuse could fall in this category. It could be alcohol, could be marijuana, which is a growing uh, thing, obviously, in our culture now. Illicit drugs, uh, prescription drugs, even used outside of doctor's orders. All of those could fall into this category. 
And I think it's important that for us as Christians, as a church, if we're going to think about this biblically, we need to redefine our definition of, of drunkenness and addiction. Because our culture defines it as, as long as your use habit doesn't impact your daily life, then it's not an addiction. Right? As long as you can still go to work and hold down a job and have a family and have some money, and as long as it's not like imploding your life, then it's not an issue. That's not the way the Bible thinks about it. The Bible says that when you need it to function, when you can't get through the day or the week without it, that's drunkenness. That's addiction. When you can't control your appetite for it, once you start, you've got to have more, that's addiction. That's drunkenness as the Bible talks about it here. But here's the hope in that, friends. I know like this is a heavy topic for a lot of people and for a lot of people in our culture today, but here's the hope in that. Our culture says, hey, this is, a, this is a, 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 an addiction, this is a, a condition that you can't control. Maybe you got it from your parents, maybe you got it from your environment, whatever, but, but you're just going to have this the rest of your life. And Paul says, no, no, this is not a condition. This is a work of the flesh. And the good news is, those who are in Christ, those who have the Holy Spirit, do not have to live in the works of the flesh any longer. That you can actually be delivered from these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. The last one that he touches on is orgies, which we tend to think about in a sexual connotation, but here that's not actually what it means. It means like out-of-control partying, specifically with substances, right? Where, where you just lose all self-control. And you're just fully in whatever that is in the moment. Related to substance abuse again. And then at the end of his whole list here, if that wasn't enough, <laughs> he says, and things like these. In other words, I'm, I didn't give you all the list. I gave you part of the list. There's more, but I think, I think we're all good. I think we got the picture. And then he says this statement, which is very sobering. He says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I hope that that is a very concerning statement for you as it is for me, because if we're being honest, all of us have some of the things on this list in our life, at least from time to time. I don't think any of us made it through that list with being like, yep, I'm good on all those, check, move on. But here's what you need to know about that statement. When he says those who do such things, do there doesn't mean do occasionally. It means those who do those things in a continual way, in a, in a habitual lifestyle, that they just continue to go back and back and back. It's, it's not the person who infrequently lapses back into sin, but then repents and comes back to Jesus and continues following the spirits. That's not who he's talking about. That's, that's the life of every Christian, okay? We just said earlier, this battle is not going away, so we're all still going to sin from time to time. And so the life of a Christian is sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, and keep coming back to Jesus. And hopefully over time, the Holy Spirit starts to move some of those works of the flesh off to the side of our life. What he's talking about here is those who embrace their sin and continue to live this way, and don't even try to battle 
against it. They're just fully like, yeah, I'm good with this. It's the norm of their life. He says that kind of person will not inherit the kingdom because living like that proves that I don't actually have the Holy Spirit. If I put my faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has come and lived inside of me, I can't live like that anymore. I I, I can't even do that. Because the Holy Spirit is changing me and changing my heart and changing my desires. And so if that describes your life, that is a, a, a sign to you that you have not yet fully put your faith in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. And Paul's calling them back to that. But the good news is that's, that's not the last word in this story here. He says, those are the works of the flesh. But here, let me also tell you about the fruit of the Spirit. So let's talk about the flip side of this now. The fruit of the Spirit, notice again, he changes the word here. It's no longer works of the Spirit, right? It was works of the flesh. That's things that we do. Now he's talking about fruit of the Spirit. That's intentional. There's three characteristics of fruit here that are important for us to understand when we think about the fruits of the Spirit. Number one, fruit grows gradually. You know, when you go out there, if you, if you garden, I, I don't, but I, you know, I know people who do. If you go out and you look at the tomato plant, and you stand there like, all right, where are the tomatoes? They're not coming out. I don't, they're, not, they're not showing up. Like, it doesn't happen while you're looking at it, right? Like, it doesn't happen like that. It takes a week or two weeks or, I don't even know how long it takes, but it takes some time, and then you go back after a week or two, and then you, oh, look, something grew, right? It's the same thing in our life as Christians. A lot of times in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment, you're not going to be able to see the growth happening, But as you look back over your life, over a week, over two weeks, over a month, over years, hopefully you should see, if you're following Christ, growth, gradual growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, uh, fruit grows inevitably. If there is a seed in the ground, something's going to grow, okay? It's going to happen. There's a story of a man who was uh, who, who passed away and was being buried, and they were sealing up his grave with this giant marble slab. But before they did, a, an acorn kind of rolled in and got down in there, and they sealed up the tomb. But because the acorn was in there, it started to grow. And pretty soon, the tree came up, and it bust through that marble slab and grew up out of the grave. That's the picture of what he's talking about, that fruit will grow. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, it will grow, and it will grow stronger than the giant slab of sin that's sitting on your heart, and it will break through all of that. And fruit will come up, even in the midst of your struggles and your battles. It's inevitable. Number three, fruit grows symmetrically. When you have a tree, and it's growing apples, right? It's not like one grows over here, and when that one's done, it starts growing another one over here, and then another one over here. No, they all grow at the same time, right? They're all growing simultaneously together. It's interesting here, Paul uses the word fruit. Notice he doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, plural. He says the fruit of the Spirit, singular. Because it's one fruit with many characteristics. They all grow together. Sometimes we're like, well, I'm really good at this one and this one, but not so great over here. And and we like to measure ourselves. You ever notice that we like to measure ourselves by our strongest area, not our weakest area? But here's what really happens. Some of us, because of our personalities, because of our experiences, because of our backgrounds, some of these fruits of the Spirit naturally look better in our lives than the others, not because it's the work of the Holy Spirit, because that's just part of who we are. 
if you really want to know how the growth of your fruit is going, don't look at your strongest one. Look at your weakest one. That's the level that the Holy Spirit is growing all of your fruit. The other ones that look stronger, they're getting a bonus from your other personality traits. Okay? The weakest one is the level of fruit growth that's happening in your life. So then he goes into this list. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. We talked about this last week. Around here we define love as you be for me. Right? Putting others before ourselves. Our culture defines love as you for me. Right? Like, I'll love you if you do some things for me that deserve that love. The Bible says, no, love is you before me. That's the way Christ loved. Number two is joy, which means a delight in God for who he is. Not for what he does, not for how he fixes my life or changes my circumstances, but just joy over because he is God. Number three is peace, resting in God's sovereign control. I can have peace because I know he's got this, even when I don't. Number four is patience, being able to face trouble without blowing up or tapping out. The Bible calls it long-suffering in some verses, that I'm willing to suffer through knowing that on the other side, I can trust the Lord in it. There's patience in that. Number uh, five, we five, kindness toward others. Showing them kindness, usually through service or hospitality or generosity, expressing that kindness to other people. Next is goodness, which points to a sincerity of integrity, right? That, that I, I am who I, who I say I am. I'm not a hypocrite. Next is faithfulness, similar to this, related to this, that my word is reliable, that I'm true to what I say, that I'm going to do what I say I will do. That's faithfulness. Number, the next one, whatever number this is, is gentleness. Looking at humility. Gentleness is about self-forgetfulness, about having empathy and compassion for others, not making it all about me. And then lastly, self-control. Not ruled by the urgent, not impulsive, not uncontrolled, but self-controlled, right? in my decisions, in my actions. He says, all these things, these are the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit changes in your life. This is how He changes you. And He says, against such things, there is no law. In other words, you can't legislate fruit. Right? You can't mandate for fruit to grow. Right? You can mandate things not to happen. You can't necessarily mandate things to happen. Let me give you an example of this. Like with parenting, right? I can force my kids to do the dishes each night after dinner. But that doesn't mean that the fruit of kindness and hospitality towards their family is actually growing in their heart. I can force my kids to tell their sibling that they're sorry after they hit them with the baseball bat or whatever the thing is, right? But that doesn't mean that they actually are growing in humility and gentleness towards their brothers and sisters. I can teach them how to live in moderation and do a budget and be self-controlled, and that doesn't mean that the self-control is actually growing in their heart. Now, don't get me wrong, parents. It's still our job to do all these things, all right? Still be good, responsible parents. You need to teach your kids these behaviors. You need to teach them all these things. 
but you also, we also, need to be praying for and pursuing their hearts with the Holy Spirit. Because there's a level of this that we can't do, only the Holy Spirit can do. The law can force behaviors, but the law can never change the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so we need the Holy Spirit working inside of us to change us and to produce this spiritual fruit that we can't produce. Now, any farmer will tell you that in the end, they actually have no ability to produce a crop. Right? Like, they cannot make it grow. They can do lots of other things. They can till the ground. They can fertilize it. They can plant the seeds. They can water it. They can do all the things, but they can't actually make it grow. All they can do is cultivate the right conditions for growth to happen and then trust the Lord to do the rest. Friends, that is the Christian life. That's what it's all about. We cannot, we cannot produce spiritual fruit in our own lives or in the lives of anyone else. What we can do is cultivate the right conditions for the Spirit to work in us and to produce fruit through us. And so the questions that we need to be asking ourselves here is this. Again, Paul, remember, he wanted us to do a self-assessment on these things, on these two lists. And so what works of the flesh do I see in my life? That's the first question. What works of the flesh do I see in my life? And then number two, what fruit of the Spirit do I see in my life? And then lastly, how can I weed out the first and make more room for the second to grow? It's about replacing one with the other through the power of the Spirit. Look for works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. And then this last section, Paul's going to tell us how to move on that, what to do with that. Here are the two steps. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Last point this morning is this, crucify the flesh and walk in the Spirit. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus. So again, he's reminding us, like, I'm talking to believers here. Those who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, who have been saved by his grace through faith, and you have received the Holy Spirit, you are in Christ. Those who belong to Christ, he says, if that's you, you have already crucified the flesh. Remember, the flesh is our sinful nature, right? And he says you have crucified it, past tense. It's already happened. At conversion... When we say yes to Jesus, we're also saying no to sin. That's what repentance is. It's turning from one to the other. It's saying no to the flesh and yes to the Holy Spirit. And at that moment of faith, our old self, our old flesh, was crucified. We took it and we hung it on a cross and we walked away. That's what faith is. That's what it means to be saved. 
He says, you have already crucified the flesh. But interestingly enough, it's past tense, but also in the Greek, it's also in the active tense. Meaning, it's not something done to us. God isn't the one who crucifies our flesh. It's something done by us. That we are the ones who have to crucify our flesh. And we have to do it continually. We have to choose to repent of our sin and die to our fleshly desires over and over and over again. Jesus said it like this to his disciples in Luke 9, 23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus is saying, like, listen, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to deny your flesh, that old part of you. You've got to deny that and nail it to a cross. Crucify it and be done with it. And the, the, this image of crucifying it, both him and Paul, this is not on accident. There's three pieces here of crucifixion that I think are vital to understanding this concept. Number one, crucifixion is ruthless. Crucifixion, it was the worst, absolute worst form of punishment during this day and age. It was execution that was reserved for the worst criminals because it was painful and it was utterly shameful and there was nothing respectable about it at all. Paul's saying that's the way we have to look at our sin. We can't play nice. We can't be like, well, it's not that big of a deal and, and be all cordial with it and respectable to it. He's like, no, no, there's nothing respectable about this. You have to crucify it. done. Be ruthless in dealing with your sin. Number two, crucifixion is painful. It, tort it literally tortured its victims to death. That's what crucifixion was. It was intense, intense pain, sometimes for days and days. The word that we have in our language called excruciating, that comes from the description of the pain of the cross. It was extremely painful, reminding us that, hey, when we crucify our flesh, it's going to be painful. It's not going to be easy, friends. It's not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to hurt. It always hurts to put the old self to death. And then lastly, number three, crucifixion is decisive. Yes, crucifixion was a lingering death. Sometimes it would go on for days. But it always was a certain death. In fact, they would oftentimes post soldiers at the foot of the cross to guarantee that whoever went up on the cross did not come back down off the cross still alive. That it was a certain death. Likewise, the killing of our flesh and our sin, although it's oftentimes a gradual process, it happens over time, we can't stop till it's dead. We have to go all the way. Too often, we want to return back to the cross of our sin. We want to visit it and remember it and look at it, maybe even take it down for a little bit and use it again and then put it back up there. Paul says, no, no, no. Crucify it. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Meaning, we have to crucify the flesh every single day. It's not a one and done. 
This is an ongoing process for us. Pastor and writer John Stott said it this way. He said, the first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and decisiveness of our repentance. You want to be holy with the Lord? It starts with the degree and decisiveness that you are willing to repent and crucify the flesh in your life. That's the first step. Crucify the flesh. And then secondly, he goes on, he says, if we live by the Spirit. Early in verse 18, he uses a slightly different word. He said, if we're led by the Spirit. The word lead there has this picture of a, of a shepherd leading out his sheep and then following in perfect order behind him. I think the important part about that is that it starts, this whole process of putting sin to death and growing in the Spirit, it starts with us in a passive role and the Spirit in an active role. The Spirit is the one who asserts himself into our hearts and into our lives. He takes the initiative to change our desires and change our hearts. It starts with him. We simply have to yield to his leading. So we start by being led or living by the Spirit. But then Paul goes on. He says, but now let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's our part of the the equation. The Spirit does the changing inside of us, and then we just have to keep in step. The picture, again, there is of like a a military commander leading out his platoon, and they're all in lockstep behind him. Every perfect step in order, right? It means to follow in someone's footsteps, to walk along the same path that the Spirit is walking. To reject all the other paths, all the other desires, and replace our way with His way walking with him step by step every, every step of the way. I started off the message and we talked about that this world is like a, like a live minefield that we're walking through. Trying to not blow up our lives with all these works of the flesh that we can't see. This is why we so desperately need to be led by the Spirit. He's walking. He's walking right in front of us. He's right there, helping us avoid all the minds. So I'll take step here, don't step there, follow me, step where I step. And our job is simply to exactly step where he steps. Every foot, every move. Because any, at any moment, one wrong step will blow our lives up with the works of the flesh again. Now, practically, this means following the Spirit in some obvious ways, like spiritual disciplines, right? Being in God's Word, reading, letting Him speak to us, praying on a regular basis and talking with the Lord and letting Him speak to us that way as well. It means being in community with other believers, getting into a small group and growing together where you've got other people who are being uh, used by the Spirit in your life. It means coming and worshiping on Sundays where we're all together and we're in His presence and we're able to hear together from the Lord. Those are, those are good. Those are great. Those are obvious ones. But there's also the less obvious ones that just happen every single day when we're not here in this perfect church place. Right? It also means keeping in step with the Spirit 
in how we engage in recreational activities? What am I being a part of? What am I, how, how am I acting when I'm there? What conversations am I having? And what relationships am I building in those areas? Am I following the Spirit in the way that I'm doing this? It means in how we engage in media. Am I following the Spirit when I'm watching this or listening to this or reading this? Would the Spirit be in this with me right now? Am I following the Spirit in these relationships at work and how I'm dealing with people and how I'm treating people? Am I in step with the Spirit in every part of my life? That's what Paul's talking about. Are you walking your own path that keeps leading you back to the works of the flesh? Or are you walking in step with the Spirit on His path? That's what changes us. Crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. Paul starts off this whole section. He says, walk by the Spirit to war against the flesh. There is a war. There is a battle. And it's not going away. As long as we live, we're going to be in this. We'll always be fighting against our flesh. Until one day Jesus comes and removes it. Praise the Lord. But until then, we have to keep fighting And we can keep fighting knowing that we have a battle plan. Paul just gave us the battle plan. Crucify the flesh, walk by the Spirit, follow Him. That's what the Christian life is all about, following the Spirit in the grace of God. And if we do this, He'll keep growing fruit in our lives and He'll keep weeding out the works of the flesh. Crucify the flesh, walk by the Spirit. Let's stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for our time together this morning. Thank you, God, for your presence with us once again. God, you were ever so faithful to meet with us, to work in our hearts. God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, helping us, guiding us, changing us each and every day. Lord, thank you for growing your fruit in us to make us more like Jesus to put the flesh to death, God. Lord, help us today, help us this week, Lord, to crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit every day until we see you face to face. Lord, it's all for you, it's all through you, it's all in you, Christ. Thank you. Pray this in the precious name of Jesus.